Genesis 22. Read 1 through 14. Gary. after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him Abraham and he said behold here I am and he said take now thy son thine only son Isaac whom thou lovest and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of and Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up, and went into the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father, and said, My father? And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Um, this took place on Rosh Hashanah, Jewish New Year. Before we do the word studies, I want to I, I spent the day at the library getting some other stuff about this. But except for the cross, this is the greatest sacrifice possible in the scriptures. And God had made the sacrifice even greater. The Talmud says that, that, it doesn't say specifically, but that Isaac is now in his 30s. And that means Abraham is 130 years old. So 
Sarah is about 125, 26, 27, something like that. And we've seen how the promise was made to Abraham many, many, many years ago. And he thought the promise went to all the other things, just like you and I do. We But finally, the promise came through faith, through Sarah. And Isaac was born. And for many years, the bondwoman and her son had been cast out. Lot is, is gone. Eliezer is still there. But, but I want you to try to visualize Abraham. That this is that which is most precious to him more precious than even a child of his youth. More precious than anything that you can imagine because you haven't experienced what Abraham experienced. But it's the most precious thing, an order of magnitude above what you can consider as precious. Now, the Talmud says that the two servants that went with him were Eliezer and Ishmael. But for some reason, God had called Ishmael back to be a participant in this. And as they were going up, Ishmael and Eliezer knew what was about to happen, that Isaac was going to be sacrificed. And so I had this great discussion. Ishmael told Eliezer, now I will be the heir. You know, again, it's a type of you saying, you know, anyway. And then it goes on, and, 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 and it, it, Eliezer said, no, you, you've been disinherited because your mother was cast out as a bondwoman, and you were disinherited. And Eliezer said, well, surely I will be because I've been a faithful servant. I've served faithfully. I've done night and day. I've, I've served Abram or Abraham ever since. We le he left Ur. Because they both were looking after the flesh. Now there's a fascinating story about after they had reached the mountain, the, um, they, you, you'll see it said they left the two and just Abraham and the son went up the mountain at Mount Moriah. And um, the fallen angel, Samael, who was mean, he's, he's the companion to Azazel, disguised himself as an old man, a kindly old man. And he appeared to Abraham and said, Can the command to kill your only son, the son of your old age, proceed from a God of love? and a God of justice, and a God of mercy, you've been deceived. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what the mind would say. I'm convinced that the Talmud always, and the, the Bible always attributes it to another party. Well, Samael, he was disguised as no man, all right? He was disguised as the mind of Abraham. 
And as he was proceeding up the mountain, his mind was telling him, God is love, God is mercy, God is justice. He can't possibly require this of me. Well, Abraham saw through it. He disregarded his mind. He disregarded the Antichrist in him. And so the next juncture was that Samael disguised himself as a young man and appeared to Isaac and said to Isaac, this can't be right. Your father's senile. Your father's gone crazy. Is this what you were born for? Is this what the child of the promise was born for? To be killed on a lonely mountain all alone? You're supposed to inherit the earth. <coughs> Obviously, your father has been deceived. Well, Isaac didn't see through it. But Isaac went and told Abraham. And Abraham saw through it and commanded Samael to flee. And that's what the scriptures in the New Testament are about. Resist or stand and he will flee. Because Isaac could have beat up. That's the thing that really hits me. Yeah, you know. 130 and 30, yeah. and it says he bound him up. Yeah. The kid couldn't have resisted. Yeah. Well. He must so, have been a willing second. Um, but I, I mean, can you, can, I mean, doesn't it sound like modern religion? Yeah. Sounds like your mind every day. Your mind loves religion. Now, when this final, that test was over on the mountain, Isaac willingly consented to die. He said, Blessed be the living God who has chosen me as a burnt offering before him today. You remember what we just studied about a burnt offering? It was the offering that was a sweet savor. It was the offering in which there, were, there was no part of it burned outside the camp. It was totally consumed on the altar. And it was the type, when you present yourself as the living sacrifice, then you are the burnt offering that's the sweet savor unto the Lord. Now, the altar that they built was built from the stones and it's in the same exact place on Mount Moriah, which Adam first built, then Abel rebuilt, Noah built, and Shem rebuilt. There's only one altar. And it's the altar that's set before you at all times. Remember we've talked about there are two realities. And when you hear the voice of God out of heaven, it's not some thundering voice. It's that overriding reality in time and space, which is the new Jerusalem. And it's always there. And there's only one altar, and it's the altar that's in the one temple, and it's wherever you are. 
because there's only one reality. And Isaac said, it's interesting that he said, the Talmud says that Isaac built the altar. Or rebuilt it. And then he said, bind me tightly, lest I shrink from the knife and make the offering unacceptable to God. Remember in the Psalms of Ascent, bind me tightly, bind the sacrifice tightly to the horns of the altar. Because everything in me will desire to run from it. Everything in me will think there is another place of sacrifice. Now you have to notice a lot of things about this. Number one is that the offerer never ever once chooses their own place of sacrifice. Any one of you would be an absolute fool to have chosen to come here. Just as Isaac would have been a fool by the flesh to have chosen to go to Mount Moriah. The trouble with modern Christianity, they go to the church of their choice and expect to be moved by God. It's a contradiction in terms. God establishes the bounds of your habitation, not you. And your sensory perception with regard to those bounds is as filthy rags. Bind the sacrifice tightly to the horns of the altar. And you will, because you know, you, you know from your own experience that every five minutes you want to get up and run. You want to go someplace else. Bind the sacrifice tightly to the horns of the altar. Are the circumstances those things that that bind you to the altar, like things that have that are your? Now, the only thing that binds you in sensor, in from a sensory perception, is the one realization that finally says there's no place else to go. Then he tipped the then he then and, and he said and he said to he said to Abraham take then the ashes from my sacrifice to my mother and tell her these ashes bear witness to the sweet savor of the burnt offering Isaac said that he said after he is after it's he said that's the last thing he said to his father before he lifted the knife now, do all of you remember the burnt offering? We just studied it. It's one of the three offerings that are a sweet savor unto God. That, that, that are totally consumed. It's an offering of acceptance. Well, the blowing of the ram, then, then if, as you know, we'll see here in a minute, that then a, ram's, a ram is caught in a thicket. And so a ram's horn is blown on the feast of Rosh Hashanah. On the Jewish New Year. To signify, because one of the things that Abraham said at this point was, I know that in the future years, my people shall not meet the test. Blow the ram's horn to do two things. One is to confuse Satan. And the other is to remind God of the supremacy of 
the Isaac, the sacrifice of Isaac. Now just, just concentrate a minute and understand. The moment that ram's horn was blown in Jerusalem, on the eve of the beginning of Rosh Hashanah, Christ was born. It completed the cycle. You, uh, you just you just said the sacrifice of Isaac, and while Isaac's throat was not slit, it was it is as real. It is the sacrifice of Isaac because it is as real as if his throat had been slit. Amen. And now, so that so that Isaac died on the altar, and from that moment on, somebody knew got up. That's right. From the altar. In addition. This is, the, this is the reason for all of the animal sacrifices. And everybody in Judaism recognized it. That every time an animal was sacrificed, it was as though Isaac was being sacrificed because God had provided the ram in the thicket. You know, that's why when they repented in sackcloth, that wasn't burlap, that was the... Sackcloth was the cloth that was made from the hair of the animals that were sacrificed. And when they repented in sackcloth, they put on the animal, i.e. accepting the death totally of that animal, and they put the ashes from the burnt offering on their forehead to signify that they had passed through the fire. It's not some stupid thing where, you know. Well, this then is a, is a, this is a window into... I'm crucified with Christ. Amen. We'll see that more here in a minute. Well, the other thing that happened on the on the when the when the ram's horn is blown on the um, I don't know if you remember this. We've studied it before, but one of the things that happens and in, in that that they believed that that was that happened when the, when the ram's horn was blown in Rosh Hashanah was that God moved from the judgment seat to the mercy seat again because recalling this, but we'll see how this wasn't recalling. It was the antitype, or the prototype, excuse me, of, of, um, of the cross, the perfect sacrifice. Okay? One other thing that's interesting, in the Gospel of St. Thomas, Jesus said, raise the stone, and you shall find me. He's talking about the stone that followed, the rock that followed them in the wilderness, you know, that he said, raise the stone and you shall find me. Cleave the wood and I shall be there. He's obviously talking about, because Isaac had to carry his own cross or his own wood. <coughs> okay, let's, let's talk for a minute about the word Verse 1, God did tempt Abraham. The word is, if you remember, if we, those of you who have done this, gone through this before, the word is nasa. And, it, and tempt, in the English language, and you, no matter how much we've studied this, you still inherently believe that temptation means to put something in front of you to tempt to do evil. I mean, when you think about being tempted, 
That's, that's what the English language equivalent of the word means. It's, it's, it's a temptation to do something that in your mind you think is wrong. Both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, the word temptation, testing, all that, means totally different. It means put to the test for the purposes of approving. It doesn't really matter what agency. It has nothing to do with the agency. It's it means the same uh, word that when it says Satan tempted and all that kind right. of thing. It's put to the test for the purposes of approving. Not the, not the English meaning of enticing to do wrong. Not put to the test for the purpose of failing. No, can't fail because he can't fail. You cannot fail a test. Now, man is forbidden to tempt God. Now, what does it mean to tempt God? No, you don't want to know that tonight. Put him to the test. Put him to the test for the purpose of us approving of him. That's right. Approving of him. Let's 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 let let me show you something of that. Romans one. Remember when we started doing the word studies on Romans many 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 years ago. You weren't born yet. Verse, Romans 1, verse 28. It says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, to, those, to do those things which are not convenient. Now, the word did not like is a word that means that they put God to the test for the purposes of approving. And the moment they did that, the moment you the moment man, and this isn't past tense, it's a continuum, the moment man puts God to the test for the purposes of approving him, what happens? God lets them be. He takes his hands off. And their own worst fears come upon them. You understand? It's like <clears throat> you're, you're inexorably going either in one of two directions. In, in the spirit, everybody in the human race is either, is either there's, no, there's only, really there's only one path. There's only one way. And you're either going with the flow or against the flow. And those that are in the, going against the flow have put God to the test for the purposes of approving. And I want you to think about what modern religion does in this regard. Modern religion puts God to the test for the purposes of approving him. And then he doesn't meet their test, and so what do they do? Then they blame it on hidden sin in your life. So... 
because obviously God is approving and they should be approving what's being done. And so they blame it first on hidden sin. Then they, then if that doesn't work, then they blame it on demons. Because their definition of God stuff, by, it can't, it cannot pass the test. <clears throat> if we believe the success in life BS, as we've said before, then everybody that goes there would be 457-year-old millionaires. If they put God to that test, then God will give it over. He'll let them, he'll let the spirit of the power of the air move in that environment until their own worst fears have come upon them. It's inexorable. It's not that they're a little bit wrong, it's that they're exactly opposite from truth. Does the power give them what they want? Well, for a moment. To keep them on the wrong track or whatever? Right. The power, this, don't think of it, don't try, well, one of the problems in our mind is we always, we always allocate power, we, we always allocate causes to power. I mean, remember, there's just one cause. There's only the first cause. I mean, th think about it. I'm not communicating with you. I don't it think. seems like when, when you put God to the test, it's like he steps back and the other God steps in, and then that God may do as you say and provide them with some of the things that they pray for and seek after that, but it's the... the the God of this world is the one that they are now worshiping right. and receiving. From. Right. You remember the Antichrist is in the name of Jesus yeah. and his power is based on what he can do for you. Because anti doesn't mean against, it means instead of. This is big time stuff, folks. Because I guarantee you that in modern religion, for the most part, they would have ascribed the sacrifice of Isaac to the Antichrist. They would have said, and therefore it couldn't have been done. Because God, the God of love, of justice, of mercy, could never, by, def by their definition of who God is, could never have passed their test. Do you understand it? They would have placed, they would have created God in their image. And the God that they created in their image, the sacrifice of Isaac, could not have possibly passed the test. Amen? Amen. Okay. Now, Well, there's all kinds of... We could spend all evening on testing. But I'll, 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 give, I'll give you a hint. That fundamentally for, for, for us, the wilderness is the place of testing. And you won't know it's a wilderness as long as in your mind you see other options. 
You understand the battle is totally internal in your mind. As long as you have options one, two, three, four, and five, then by definition there can be no wilderness. Because by definition, a wilderness is a place without option. <coughs> as long as you are seeing options in your life, then you're still in Egypt. Was, was God... This is my, was God telling Abraham... Was, was, was the test of Abraham whether he would give up the promise? And he had the prom there's the promise. He could see it. It's in his hands. He could touch it. The reason this is, is what he's waited for. This is the this is the mind of Christ. This is the this is the even if I am reprobate, even if I'm finished, it doesn't make any difference. The mind of Christ is always to empty the promise. Empty the promise. You you empty everything. So here, and this is the ultimate emptying. Yeah. It's the promise by which everything in the future is depended upon. <laughs> Obviously, there can be no heirs, there can be no nothing, there can be no Israel, there can be nothing that takes place based on everything that we see as the mystery of God if Isaac is killed. I mean, that's the essence of it. It's the emptying of the mystery. It's the emptying of the purpose. It's the emptying of everything, of the promise so that you are in a continual point of being poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And it's that, it's that moment of if God isn't there, false law. Yeah, but you don't, you, you, you come to a point where it's like, that's not even in the equation anymore. Well, for Abraham, all was lost. Right, and we'll talk about that clearer, because from Abraham's standpoint, Isaac had been dead three days. Yeah. We'll see that more in a minute here. Let's take a look. I want to talk a minute about Mount Moriah. In verse 2 it says, And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell of thee. Moriah means <clears throat> scene of God. And if you're in Mount Moriah, that's where you are seen of God. The only place that, you, that you're seen of God is at the altar. There's only one altar. And the altar is only in Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is where Adam built an altar. It's where Abel built an altar. It's where Noah built an altar. Shem. It's where Enoch built. It's where Enoch was translated. I mean, the only place that God has commerce with the human race is at Mount Moriah. Because that's the only place that Moriah, again, Moriah means scene of God. And the only, and, and that by definition is the only place where the altar is. I mean, if we just did a simple freshman Hebrew word study, we could find out so easily that that Israel, the physical Israel, is meaningless. 
because it's it's a new thing taking place, a new Jerusalem, which is not which is the mother of us all. And, and, and at that altar, that's why it says, present yourself the living sacrifice. You can only present yourself by law. You can't present yourself a living sacrifice at any other place than the altar. There's, you don't build little altars to go pray to like modern churches do. You don't have a little altar to pray at. An altar is a place of death, a place of sacrifice only. Now, it's interesting how, again, how churches developed. You can watch the progress if you look at church development. Churches met just like we are, little groups of people in houses. Well, then, they, then, then when, they, when they got rid of the idea of, that it had to be limited, then, okay, then we had to get more people in, so they built rows of seats or benches. Well, then it came, well, now the, the place where the preacher speaks from, that must be the altar. And so, I mean, it's just a progression of, 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 of apostasy that goes from a synagogue with a recognition. There's no altar in a synagogue, by the way. wonderful and he had his own little stairway up into right. it and, and uh, you know I felt like a little kid I wanted to go up in there and see what it was like <laughs> how many have you been to, did you go to Notre Dame uh -huh. it's got that spiral thing in it I love that maybe build you a little place up in the corner <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, Saint yeah, Peter. Sort of talk of the propositions as an angel, you know, kind of putting his arms out, stretching his See, I mean, you can you can understand why those things develop. I mean, I'd love it. Yeah. <laughs> I think you'd look good in little slippers that curl up, with the toes, and the long things, and the little hat, and the stick. I need a stick. But I think the little, little slippers, the little satin slippers. But but you, but again, think of it in terms of the opposite, the synagogue. The angel had to sit lower than anybody. I mean, there was a hole in the, in the floor. But that's why, in, that, the, John doesn't know it, but that's why in that great song that John wrote, that it said, I'm perfect from the moment that you see me. You know, I'm yours, Lord. Everything I am, everything I'm not, I'm perfect from the moment that you see me. Because the only place you, he sees you is on the altar, at the place of sacrifice, which is on Mount Moriah, which is where the temple was. So the everlasting cry is the same. Get thee into the land or the place of Moriah. Get thee to the altar. All right. 
Well, and then we go down to... Um, and Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went into the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. There's all kinds of third day stuff in the scriptures, which we've talked about a hundred times, so I'm not going to talk about them tonight. But, um, this is third day stuff. It's 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 the it's the point of death. Um, it's being dead, but you're dead only long enough so you don't start to stink. By law, on the fourth, see, the Jews believed that that for three days after your death, the uh, the spirit of God moved and hovered around you. But then on the fourth day, the death angel drops some goodies on the body, and the goodies cause the body to start to stink. And that's why when Jesus raised Lazarus, you know they come in, you know they're, they're coming, but he stinketh. And he purposely delayed so it would be the fourth. Day. Right, so that it would destroy that imagery. Possibility. You've got to understand that from the point in time that God told Abraham to take his son and offer him there for a burnt offering, I mean, Abraham, in, 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 in Abraham's mind, Isaac was dead for those three days. I mean, you know, like, we can't relate to this. I mean, you can't relate to to you, you can sort of if like if you take one of your children and say that this had to take place. Um, but that's not even the case. I mean, after you, I mean, you, you had to have empathized the worst condition where Abraham had, you know, struggled for a hundred years and no children, and then finally, then he'd been with him for thirty years or so. And, I mean, it's it's mind blowing. Now in verse 4, Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes. And saw the place. Now, there's no record that Abraham had ever been here before. The word place is mekoma, which means the standing There's no record that he's ever been here before. I mean, he'd been all around here, but he'd never been there. But he knew the place. He recognized it when he saw it. He knew it deep within him. He knew the place of sacrifice, just as every man that has ever lived knows that place when they see it. And they'll run from it. And then he left the young men, the disciples, it's something the father and the son had to go through alone. Hmm. Which is interesting from God and Christ's standpoint. 
so much, but this must be repeated in you. That's what it means to pick up your cross. You, you, there's, a, there's a time in which, you know, I can't do you any good. Nobody can do you any good. It has to be you and God to see your, your singular place of sacrifice. If that hasn't occurred in you, then, you know, something is set before you. There's a greater revelation that's coming. Remember we've talked about the three kinds of graces that God has given to all men to see God. The grace of Abraham, the grace of Isaac, and the grace of Jacob. Everybody wants the grace of Isaac because it's quick. But think about <laughs> the grace of Isaac requires, it's yeah, it's quick. It's your quick death. Tie me tightly. I won't be able to flinch. Says he, uh, is he thinking this whole time that, that he's going to be resurrected, though, right? Because he says, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Well, no, you can't. Didn't he, didn't he say that somewhere, yeah, though? He said he'd be able he to raise. Well, here, here's the, here's the, now we're at the knife edge of faith. Paul said it in, in Hebrews, if we agree that he, Paul wrote Hebrews, that, that he and the lad would come again. It's like, um, Try to empathize it, though. I mean, don't just write it off as saying, okay, he already knew. That's like well, yeah. That's like writing it off and saying that Jesus knew that he was going to be resurrected, so it yeah. wasn't a big deal. Yeah, it wasn't any big test. It wasn't any big test to walk through <laughs> hell with no power. It's not any big test if you really know that you're going to be resurrected. Well, that's bullshit. The test, that's why faith and knowledge are synonymous. And that's why knowledge that's only intellectual is worthless. Because you have to have the knowledge, but then it has to be experientially worked out. That's why it says work out your faith in fear and trembling. Because it's, it's, you work out that which the knowledge, but you, I mean, you can't have any faith without knowledge, so you get the knowledge... Faith cometh by hearing. You get the knowledge, and then it's worked out. But it's the the, the emotional test of that moment is. It's like even though he he may have thought and knew that it was still fear and trembling, right? Because what if I'm wrong? Yeah. You know, what if I didn't hear? What if I would? If I wouldn't? Or what if I? Well, let's look at that, Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 
And starting in verse 8, we'll go through about verse 18. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whether he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promises in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive, and was delivered of child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is heavenly, wherein God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also received him in a figure, etc., etc. So, I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty heavy duty. I mean, he's going to, his son, he's gonna, the knife in his hand, he's about to go, because he, by faith, believes he can raise him from the dead. Well, could that's pretty easy to say. Mm -hmm. We believe that he could raise him. And this, and, and this, this ascription of faith to Abraham that he believed he could raise him from the dead could be very similar to saying that by faith Moses left oh, yeah. Egypt. Oh, yeah. And then verse 6, back to 22. It's like that's the only option your mind can come up with. Right. It's like you got to believe it in that sense because there's no other... You you don't think anything else could happen. You don't think, oh, you catch him, there's a ram. It's like you were saying earlier, you couldn't think of any other ways that things mm -hmm. could be worked out. But that's the limits of our mind we're stuck with. We've got to go to other ways. Amen. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac. His son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. The wood is the word etz, which, you know, it's proper translation of that is the cross. And just as Jesus took his cross and carried it to Calvary, so Isaac in type took the tree or the wood. And so must you take up your cross. What does it mean to you? You've heard me talk about it a hundred thousand times. It's not the instrument of your death, but that's kind of 
Take up your cross. Abandon yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. It only has one meaning. It means your death, but what the hell does that mean? Is this all your identity? Thinking right now, it's like embracing those things that would you not normally would not, you know, that they go against your very everything in you, you know, the the things that you know, like being married or. You know. Yeah, it's all your hopes and ideals. The things you used to have are just gone. No more and you. And it's just him. I just saw it in a little different way than I've seen before. It's, it's when you pick up your cross, you don't think of a, oh, I love Jesus and he said it and here I am doing it. It's like you almost you forecast out through the rest of your life at all the decision points along the way. Uh, which will be opportunities to deny self and accept death of of your purpose in life, of your desires, of your this, that, and the other. So it's a continuum that you must accept, not at one time. Oh, I've done that. Well, I think I think one of the one of the effects. I think the major effect is if if you're carrying a cross, or if you're carrying the wood that you're going to be burned on, it's difficult to worry about bank account or car repairs. The, the intimate test in every detail is, is that you will never again seek to save you or yours. Save means to protect or edify or obtain. That you will never again seek to save you or yours. And, and that's answered because it says he who seeks to save his life shall lose it. Now, the implications of that are kind of massive. <laughs> to seek to save your life. Think of the thousands of ways you seek to save your life, save your reputation, save your credit rating, save your image of self, save your image to your family, save your image to yourself. It eventually comes to the point where you can take no thought for the things you're going to eat, the things you're going to wear, the things you're going to drink. And if you can't take thought for those three basics, I mean, it's obvious you can take thought for nothing else. If you seek to save your life, you will lose it. 
as far as you are concerned, right this instant is your last breath. That you live life in a continuum that the next breath or five minutes or whatever you're capable of thinking about, that you live your life in that frame of reference and don't tell me it's impossible because I've done it, folks. Everybody used to tell me it was impossible. Now they tell me, well, it's impossible, it's okay for you, but it's because you don't have a family. Now when you hear this, your response, you can have no other response than repentance. Because every one of you has sought to save your life this day. The real test of it has to be, I mean, we, we always say, take up your cross. But the first half of it, the first part of the sentence, first third of the sentence says, abandon yourself. And so, part of the abandonment of self, I mean, it's natural for the child, the spiritual child, to sit around and think about whether or not he's done what the second part says. In other words, but I want you, the freedom of it is, is that you abandon yourself. And that you never again take yourself seriously or concern yourself with whether or not that particular thing that happened was right, wrong, or indifferent. You have abandoned yourself. The taking up of the cross. I mean, when I can speak, when I can, when I can scream the cross at you and it doesn't put you on a trip, then you've picked, then you've abandoned yourself. Yes. You understand? That's why the fool, by the foolishness of preaching, men are saved. Because preaching itself is part of the test. Okay, well, look, we can spend all night in the cross, but I'll get to these three things because I, I don't feel like talking anymore. He's, he takes up the wood. He's got the wood. The, the, sac, the son has the wood. He has the knife, and he has the fire. Now let's go to the fire. Let's look at the fire stuff. If you're making notes, the, 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 the wood was Mark 8, 34. The fire stuff is Luke 12, 49. <clears throat> Luke 12, verse 49. come to send fire on the earth and what will I if it already be kindled but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how I am straightened till it be accomplished suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth I tell you no but rather division for from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided three against two and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son and the son against the father and the mother against the daughter and the daughter-in-law against the mother and the mother-in-law against her daughter and the 
daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, etc., etc., etc. He's come to send fire. Now, there's all kinds of things that we could talk about. With Let's go to Matthew 20 and we'll see another one. This is when the mother of James and John are, 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 are discussing, or James and somebody are just talking about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And in verse 22, Jesus answered and said, You know not what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, You shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine, but it shall be given to them for whom is, it is prepared of my Father. The baptism of Christ is the baptism of fire. As the, 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 the scriptures talk about really three baptisms. They talk about the baptism of John, which is the baptism of repentance, the baptism in the, in the book of Acts, which is talked about with regard to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and finally the baptism of fire. Now, the problem with modern theology is that they've separated the baptism of the Holy Spirit from the baptism of fire. And so they've, they've seen the baptism of the Holy Spirit as something that gives them stuff. But there's no difference in, in the context. That the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the baptism of fire. And it's the baptism which causes the offering to be made a sweet savor unto God. Remember the process. First of all, the throat is cut, the fire is kindled, and the sacrifice is burned. Okay, that's what makes a burnt offering. Now, that's referred to specifically in Rom Romans 12, when you present yourself the living sacrifice. And then in 2 Corinthians, when it talks about that you are always a sweet savor. You're a sweet savor only because there's death and then the sacrifice is burned. That's the only thing that can make it a sweet savor. It's not that the old flesh runs around and does spiritual stuff. Remember? Now, what then, how do you, how, what is the baptism of fire in, in terms of, in our experience? Or have we experienced it yet? It, it, it seems like it has something to do with God being a consuming fire. It seems like it has something to do with being consumed. Burning away. Oh, I want you to notice something. It's not it, the baptism of fire is the baptism of division. I 
Christ. Remember, it's, I, I've come what we just read in Luke 12. The baptism, I have a baptism to be baptized with that you think I've come peace, I've come to set division. Now, how can division take place? I, I, here, I'm going to say something, and I'm not sure I want to be able to... Well, I'll just say it, and you can judge for yourself. I believe that the baptism of fire cannot possibly happen to you until you are publicly identified, indiscriminately publicly identified with the doctrine. I don't think any of you or any of... Well, you may have been licked a few times by some small flames... But you have not experienced the baptism of fire. And God demands that baptism of fire. Or the offering isn't complete. It has to, it has to come. The fullness. And there is absolutely no fellowship. Everything else. Everything before the baptism of fire is simply a vain shadow of what God demands with regard to fellowship. I'm talking, fellowship is so exclusive because it requires that you walk in the light as he is in the light. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, then have you fellowship one with another. There's only one way to walk in that light, and that's to pass through that fire. Everything else is well, I could say all kinds of things about what it is, but it's, 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 it's less than that which is demanded of God because everything else will de be dependent on your sensory perception with regard to those individuals or that person. Do you understand? That's why marriages have to pass through the fire. That's why a body must pass through the fire. That's why every sacrifice must pass through the fire so that it is a burnt offering. And, and, it's a, and in that burnt offering, the reason it's division is, is because you are always, God causes, God always causes the, the, the burnt offering to triumph in Christ Jesus. Is this what Peter was talking about when he called the trial the fiery trial? Amen. And it's what, John, it's what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 14, 2 Corinthians 2, 14. We'll look at it quickly. You've all seen it before, but... It's like, like she was saying, though, that it's the trial that cleans everything up. It, right. you know, it gets all the gunk out, you know, and the indecision. And right. Now, thanks be unto God, which always, always causes us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that, are, that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life, and who is sufficient for these things. Now therein is a definition of fellowship. Stand, have you ever, have you ever smelt flesh burning? It's horrendous. Even to smell hair burning is horrendous. But to smell flesh burning is the most nauseous thing that you can conceive of. Why does it smell good then when you when you cook like chicken or flat or flesh? And, because it's not just the fact that we are it's not burning. No, it's not burning. You cook chicken, you aren't burning it. 
Oh, that's right. You're not. You're not burning it. You're just. You, what you smell is the grease. Okay. The the fat and the meat being. But but hear me. What you in the fellowship, what you in this flesh, call fellowship, is something that has never touched the fire. You, it can have touched all kinds of adversities. And it could have lasted a long time because you're nice people and you're tolerant and you can talk about stuff. But it, what, I, what fellowship is, is when flesh is burning and the flesh will automatically think it is the most disgusting, death-related thing there is. And it's only someone who is experiencing the same process can ever believe that that burning flesh is a sweet savor. For we are always a sweet savor unto God. To the one we are a savor of death unto death, to the other a savor of life unto life, and who is sufficient for these things? Now, the problem with fellowship is, is that it's been redefined as a feel-good, smile, smile at the neighbor, smile at the people, you know, some thing that's dependent on an act of the senses or an act of the flesh. Fellowship is a great, great mystery, and I doubt very seriously if any of you have ever experienced it. I doubt very seriously if almost anybody in the whole world has experienced it. It's that which is, it's that which makes the act of climaxing seem like a vain shadow. Because it's the purpose that we were created. We were created to have fellowship with the Father. And that's revealed in time in fellowship with the brethren. But that can only happen after the sacrifice has passed through the burnt offering. And that burnt offering typology can only happen when you are indiscriminately publicly identified with the doctrine. Indiscriminately because it's not identified vis-a-vis, -vis, well, I'm going to have, you know, because it's that which will cause the totality of division. Where you would where you will you would be seen as walking death. Now, look and see what Paul said about this. <clears throat> he's talking to a group like us. And he's saying. Now you are full. Now you are rich. You spend a lot of time seeking for your own. You have reigned as kings without us. And I would to God you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God hath set forth us, the apostles, last as it were, appointed to death. For we are made a Spectacle. Now, the word spectacle there means um, a trash heap. We are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men 
We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise. Why are you wise? Why would he say that? Why would he say the apostles are fools but you are wise? The reason is, is because you've managed to manipulate the doctrine to justify a particular stand in your life. So he's definitely not saying wise. He's not complimenting the No. Amen. You have managed to manipulate so that you can have the appearance of being just one of the folks. You, it's the ultimate of using the doctrine for license. We are made a spectacle unto the world and unto angels and unto men. We are fools, but you are wise. We are weak. You are strong. You are honorable. Do you understand how much time you spend trying to be honorable? How many hours a day are consumed in your life trying to be honorable? But we are despised. Even under this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted, and have no certain dwelling, and labor working with their own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world, and are the offscoring of all things unto this day. And guess what? He said, I write these things, not to shame you, but to warn you. I mean, I've tasted a little bit of this stuff. But I haven't tasted anything yet. I beseech you, be followers of me. And the only way that this happens is is that you see yourself back again at the place of Moriah. And you again offer yourself without condition as the living sacrifice. With no condition, with nothing to protect you, nothing that you would protect that you are yours. No reputations, no families, no credit, no anything. And you say, Father, I am yours, a living sacrifice, this moment. begin to see from God's standpoint the stench of your continual efforts at trying to be honorable, trying to protect yourself, trying to protect yours, you and yours, or trying to protect this body, or trying to protect anything. The promise must be emptied out. Well, that's the lesson of Isaac. I quit. Something, something that's um, that's rattling around inside me concerning the uh, the demon that that uh, that came to Abraham and came to Isaac. Concerning that, and concerning what Peter said, that it's almost like what Peter said was, "Consider it not strange fire concerning the 
fiery trial which has come to try your faith. It, it isn't the fire that, that tries faith is not strange fire. It's yeah. fire that comes from coals that have been on the blood. The blood of Christ. Oh man. That's good. Anybody have anything else? Take it, big guy.